of a major section of the book of Acts, the end of chapter 14. We'll be looking at 24 through 28 uh, this morning. Um, Starting next week, Lord willing, we'll be jumping into the study in Acts chapter 15 on the Jerusalem Council. Uh, But for today, I just want to look at 24 through 28 of uh, chapter 14. Before we get started, though, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us as we open your word again this morning that we'll be reminded of the grace of God, that we will be reminded of your calling on our lives, and that uh, the things that happen in your church are by your design, by your plan, uh, not ours. And uh, so, Lord, I pray you'll help us to uh, learn from this short text this morning, uh, be challenged in our thinking, be encouraged, and come away rejoicing in our God. In your name I pray, amen. So if you listen to Tom as he read through chapter 14, verses 24 through 28, uh, you probably looked at it and said, "Um, there's not a whole lot here. And that's okay. Uh, In first reading, that would probably come across uh, that way. It did it when I was first looking at it a long time ago. But there are some very intriguing things that are in these few short verses that I think we need to recognize and uh, be reminded of or challenged by or see for the first time. Uh, thank you, Tom, for reading it this morning. Um, is it not working? Okay. Um, so you'll notice that there is, first of all, when we get into 24 to 28, you'll notice that there is somewhat of a laundry list of places that Paul goes to. You'll notice if you've been following along from the beginning of chapter 13, Paul is sent out, we saw that already uh, this morning in the reading, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13. He's sent out and he starts going from city to city throughout a variety of areas. Uh, Some of those areas are uh, relatively close to Israel, uh, or Judah as the case may be in in, in that time frame. Uh, And some of them are more close to uh, the Antioch where he started. When I say more close, maybe 100 miles away or so. So there's a variety. And in between, you recognize that there's been some ship journeys as well as a lot of walking journeys. He's, by the way, just as an aside, he's traveled about 500 miles by ship and about 700 miles by foot at this point. So a lot of, um, a lot of walking and a lot of riding in ships. And um, it, most people think it probably took about a year and a half to two years in total for this series of uh, visits to a series of, of cities. In any case, you'll notice if you're thinking at all as you listen to Tom read in uh, 14, 24 to 28, that some of the places that are mentioned in this short section are places he's already been to. He's on his, he went to some of these places originally as he left Antioch, And now on on his journey back to Antioch, he stops back in a couple of the places where he first started. You'll notice in 24 right away. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And then he goes on in verse 25 and stops in at Perga. And then Attilia shows up as well. And then he goes on to Antioch. It's a laundry list of places he went. But at the same time, it's not merely a laundry list. I think in context, the study is quite interesting. 24 and 25 is, uh, at least, it says that 
on their way back to Antioch, as it were, they just left a variety of cities that we've studied in the last couple of weeks. The last couple was back to Lystra again. Remember, he went back, he went to Lystra, got stoned, went back in, left, went a couple other places, and then went back to Lystra again. Remember that? Um, and and uh, so now he's on his way back. And according to 24 and 25, again, he goes to Pisidia, Pamphylia, and Perga, and then down to Attilia, and nothing is said about those, those stops, is there? The only thing it's said at all is verse 25, and when they'd spoken the word in Perga. You see that? So a little bit of difference when it says about Perga, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And then they hopped on a ship and went back to Antioch. That's basically all it's said in these, in, these, in these verses. Verse 24 and 25. Which should catch our attention a little bit. Because if you jump back to chapter 13, feel free to do that. Not in the section that Tom read. That was just the intro. We'll get back to that in a little bit. But in 13, chapter 13, starting in verse 13 you discover something. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to where? Perga in Pamphylia. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. There's Pisidia, isn't it? You see that? Okay, we just saw Pisidia. And the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And then we get this real long, probably one of, if not the longest, message recordings of Paul's ministry. It's a very long, extended gospel presentation. You see that? And if you continue on through chapter 13, after he presents all of this gospel presentation... Verse 42 of chapter 13, And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So this is the Sabbath day. They say, hey, next Sabbath, can you get together with us all and tell us again? We've talked about this already. Verse 43, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them did what? Urge them to continue in the grace of God, right? So then the next Sabbath, verse 44 of chapter 13, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We're not going to exegete all those statements because we've already done so. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And then we know what happens next, is that that the Jewish people want to kill them, and so they leave the city. Right? Everybody following with me? And they shook the dust off their feet, and, um, and they went on. 
So that's an interesting description. When we think about that description of what took place in Pisidia, Antioch of Pisidia, what do we know? We know that the Jews did what with regard to the gospel? They rejected. We also know that the Gentiles, what? They received the gospel, didn't they? Now there were initially the first Sabbath some Jews that were very intrigued by the gospel, weren't they? They begged them to come back, Jews and Gentiles both, begged them to come back the next week. That's what it says. But seemingly, after that week, the next Sabbath, it was mostly, if not completely, who that's believing? The Gentiles. They certainly are the only ones rejoicing, aren't they? They're certainly the only ones rejoicing about this whole thing. And the Jews... And it's interesting that Paul does, or Luke does not identify some Jews. He just says the Jews wanted to persecute them. It seems to be in block, in mass, they wanted to persecute them. In any case, what's interesting about it is if we t- jump back to chapter 14 of the book of Acts, before our, sec- our section today, verse 24 and 25, as Luke I'm sorry, as, uh, yeah, as Luke records Paul and Barnabas going back to some cities after a few months of being away from those cities, he discovers what in those cities? Remember, we talked about it last week. What's that? If, if he's appointing elders, that means he found some elders and that means he found believers, right? And he found, if he's finding believers, he's finding elders, that means he's finding Christians, yes, but he's finding believers that are forming into a church. He's finding churches there, right? Because it even uses the term there, doesn't it? Verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church. It doesn't say he came back to establish churches. The churches were established because believers loved God and they gathered together. And what happened? By the Spirit, they formed churches. That's what happened, right? And he comes in and appoints elders. He and Barnabas come in and appoint elders for these churches that are already there. What's interesting is the contrast 23 to 24 and 25. In 24 25, he references cities he originally did what? He originally proclaimed that, originally stopped that, and now we're talking maybe a year and a half or so later, more than enough time for the churches to be established, right? More than enough time. And in Pisidia, we know there were believers, right? As many as were appointed believed. So we know that there were, there were believers there. Yet when we get to 24 and 25, all it says is, Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. What is going on? Now, obviously, it's silent, isn't it? But it's stunning to see these other towns he went to, churches are there. Isn't it? Churches are there. And not only are churches there, but... There's mature believers there. And he's appointing them as elders. And here, as he comes to these towns, the contrast is stunning to see. 
these other towns, that's what you have. In these towns, he just goes through. He doesn't stop and minister to people. He doesn't stop and encourage them. He doesn't stop and worship with them. He doesn't stop. It's almost like you get this sense that as he's moving through these original towns, he comes in and it's like he comes in and just looks around. It doesn't even say he spoke in any of them except for one. Right? Only one town does he stop and speak in. Perga. The other ones he doesn't even stop. He just walks through. It's like he's coming in and inspecting. Not expecting. Inspecting. Now, with regard to Pisidia, here's my suspicion. It's just a suspicion, so please bear with me on it. Just a suspicion. I suspect that when Paul comes to Perga, he didn't discover any Christians. I suspect he didn't discover any. I expect when he got there, what he discovered was the town was absent of believing Gentiles. That's where the Gentiles believed. I expect when he got there, he discovered they weren't there. I expect what happened was the persecution got so great that maybe some of them got killed and the rest of them were driven out. Again, that, that makes sense to me as I consider the contrast between 23 and 24, 25 combined with chapter uh, 13 where the persecution was intense and after Paul, it was the first time that really came after him and then they pursued him to the next town. I suspect when, when those people who pursued, pursued him to the next town and, he, and, and they stoned him and he got up and walked out, they went back to their original town and took it all out on, on the, the Gentiles who were believers. And so when Paul comes back to that town and he walks in, he doesn't, he doesn't discover a church. He didn't discover it at all. It's almost like he, the only place he stops to speak at all is Perga. And I suspect the reason why he stopped at Perga was because he's giving them one more chance. One more chance. But seemingly, he stops, he preaches, and what do you think happens? Just use your heads a little bit. What do you think happens? He stops at Perga and he preaches again. And what do you think happens? No response. And he moves on. Because what we have is the pattern of Paul's ministry. Response, he stays for a little bit, doesn't he? Response, he stays for a little bit and ministers to him. But here, these other towns, he doesn't even, he doesn't even, he just travels through them. It's like he's inspecting. Nope, no reason for me to stay. They already rejected it. The evidence is clear. It is rejected. We're moving on. Now, you could argue it two ways. If they drove the believing uh, Gentiles out of Pisidia, it would make sense that he wouldn't stop and preach to the Jews at that point, wouldn't it? Because what did he say in Pisidia? He said, the gospel is going to be going where? To the Gentiles. So if he drove the believing Gentiles out, if they drove the believing Gentiles out of there, then it makes sense. He'd say, oh, okay, we're just going to move on. So he moves on. But he comes to Perga. He preaches for a little bit. And he moves on again. Implication, I would argue, is not much of a response. Maybe nothing. 
Now, why do I point this out to you? And I just want to say it for a second, and then we're going to move off of it because we're going to see some really neat things at the end here. But I want to remind you, firstly, what we saw in chapter 13 was what? And as many as were appointed believed. Very important that we get that. As many as were appointed believed. And what Paul is doing seemingly as he comes through and says, I guess nobody was appointed. Now the implication I would present to you is this. And I say this because there is such an expectation in the church today. There is such an expectation that the only healthy church is the church that, what? What was that? Grows. The only church that's healthy is the one that grows. It's one of the biggest common declarations I hear. If you're not growing, you're in trouble. If you're not growing numerically, is what they're talking about. If you're not growing numerically, Ken and I, you and I talked about this last week after, after the service a little bit. If, the, if you're not growing numerically, there's something wrong. But it is interesting, in Paul's ministry... Let me just ask you this question. In Paul's ministry, when we think about the entirety of his ministry, not just chapter 14 and 13, but in the entirety of Paul's ministry, would you argue that the general tenor of Paul's ministry is one of growth or declension? Declining. Generally speaking, which one would it be? Is there some growth? In some places, there's no question. There's some growth, like we saw, we saw in, in, in uh, um, uh, Pisidia with the Gentiles, right? Saw some growth. And there's other places we see some growth, don't we? And initially, there seems to be initial significant growth. But if you look at the overall tenor of Paul's ministry, growth or decline? Decline. What's that? Yeah. Everybody in the Asian church, 2 Timothy 4, left. The entire Asian church left him. And then it also says that when I was for, up for trial, everybody left me. And what does he say to Timothy in chapter 3? Know this, in the, in the last days, this is what's going to happen in the church, but you, Timothy, singularly stand firm. So he tells Timothy, doesn't he? You stand firm in what's true. And does not the Bible teach about a faithful remnant? See, today it's all about church growth, church growth, church growth, church growth, church growth. But I would argue in the Scripture it's about be faithful. Love God. Cling to what you know. I would argue that overall Paul's ministry, if we summed it up in today's standards, was an abject failure. From today's standards. Do we have some in chapters 13 and 14 where there's something happening in a couple places? Do we? Oh yeah! But we have more failure than we have success here, don't we? Seemingly. And it's going to continue and get worse. As time goes on, as we move past chapter 15, you're going to see it over and over and over. Is there some success? Yeah. Why? Because all that have been appointed, what? Believed. So the appointed ones believe. Those who aren't appointed, 
ultimately evidence very clearly that they don't believe. Even though initially they seem like they may, right? There is interest, but ultimately many do not. I just want to point that out real briefly. It's an intriguing perspective. Verse 26, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commanded to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So now they've arrived back at Antioch after a year and a half, two years, or back to Antioch. This is not the Antioch that they ministered in. This is the original location where they started. So again, it says they sailed back to Antioch, which, by the way, also includes some walking. Um, and it says where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. A couple of things that are very interesting in the statement there in verse 26. The word commended means, it has the idea of being committed to. Okay? So, uh, what it really means is where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So they went out and they fulfilled it. Right? You see that part at the end of it, right? They fulfilled it. It's pretty clearly stated. Even though there was a lot of failure, wasn't there? Wasn't there? There's a whole lot of failure. But they fulfilled their ministry. I think it's really important that we see that. Ministry can be fulfilled in the midst of massive failure. Because what did we just say? It's about faithfulness to God. Or to be more specific in the text, be faithful to the God of grace, right? And the grace of God. Yeah, exactly. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Exactly. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 3. They planted, they watered, and that was, that's all they could do, right? But it's God that yields the increase. Absolutely, Jim. So it's interesting that you, you see there at the end that they had fulfilled. Ful, which is interesting because fulfilled does not mean what we think it means. We think fulfilled means that you, you did exactly what you set out to do. Well... If you understand it being from the perspective of the appointed part, yes! <laughs> but when you see all the cities that no church was planted and the churches they were driven out of and the church that he was stoned to death and the other one that, that they tried to stone him, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fulfilling going on. It sounds to me like a whole lot of thwarting going on and a whole lot of opposition that was not overcome. Doesn't it? But Luke records that they fulfilled it. It says, they returned to Antioch where they had been commended or committed to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Now I want to I stop on, on that verse for a little bit longer to say something real quickly because I think that we miss a point here that's really important. In Antioch, they were committed to... This ministry, as it says here, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. In Antioch, the church recognized and committed them to that ministry, right? Let me ask you a quick question. Did that ministry generate from the church at Antioch? Be careful how you answer that. No. The Spirit called Paul, Saul, to this ministry all the way back to his conversion. 
It is first declared on the day of his conversion. Okay? The church at Antioch in chapter 13 merely agreed. That's all they did. They merely agreed that this is a calling on Paul's, Paul's life and Barnabas as well. Because Barnabas is referenced a little bit later about that same calling. What's my point? My point is this. The difference, if I may say this, the difference between Paul and the church at Antioch is much smaller than you and I think. Or to put it a different way. The, the, the call on Paul and Barnabas' life and the call on the previously lame guy in chapter 14 is a lot less the difference, that is, is a lot less than you and I think. Or to put it a different way, the call on Paul and Barnabas' life in the beginning of chapter 13 is a, whole, is, is a lot less than you think different from the call on your life and mine. You see, we fall into a trap when we read these texts and we think, you know, God set Paul and Barnabas out to do this unique thing. Set apart, unique. That's the way we think about it, don't we? And I would submit to you that the calling on Paul and Barnabas is not unlike the call on any true believer's life. Paul and Barnabas are called to minister to the Gentiles, correct? Aren't they? Absolutely! Can I just ask you a quick question? Aren't you? Aren't I? I mean, aren't we? So we want to put these people separated from us because it's uncomfortable if we put them with us. Right? It's really uncomfortable. But it ought not to be. Before Paul or Saul ever came on the scene as a believer, Jesus said in Matthew 28, what? As you are going, what? Make disciples. Isn't that what he said? Isn't that exactly what he said? Is that a calling? That's a pretty clear calling, isn't it? It really is. And before that, he said, all authority, all power is given unto me. And afterwards, he says, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that what he said? It's exactly what he said. Now, you know what the real big difference? Now, obviously, there's a difference because, because Paul is, a, is an apostle and he has some abilities at times that he can heal people and things like that that we don't have. But ultimately, if you really look at it, you have to acknowledge there's more similarity than difference. Ultimately, you have to look at it and say, just as Paul and Barnabas 
had been commended to the grace of God for which they or that they had fulfilled, we, I, you, any true believer is what? Commended to the grace of God for the work. Aren't we? Aren't we? I mean, is that not clear? Matthew 28? You could say Acts chapter 1, verse 8 as well. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Could you not argue, and I think rightfully so, I, I think any other argument would be wrong, inherently wrong, that, that any true believer is commended to the grace of God? We feel comfortable with that one, right? With that part? Don't we? Do we feel comfortable as believers that, that in becoming a believer, we are commended to the grace of God or committed to the grace of God? We're dependent upon and controlled by the grace of God. Are we comfortable with that? If not, we've got a problem. Right? The issue we have a problem with is the next couple words. The next three words. To the work. Right? That gets uncomfortable. We'd rather have other people do it, right? Than us. We'll cheer for other people to do it, but we don't do it. Now, this is not a message to guilt people into doing it. Please, you know I don't preach that way. But it is to point out a, a fatal error that too often shows itself up in Christianity. And it's not, we've got to start doing it. It's, it, it, is, it is this. If we don't in our own lives connect the idea of committed to the grace of God and to the work, we've got a fatal flaw in our thinking that we have this grace of God that does all sorts of good things for us and we miss the point that He saved us for a purpose. And so we worship a God who seemingly is inactive. But He sure is active in somebody else though. Right? Isn't that how it works? Man, we think it's amazing that Billy Graham gets up and preaches to thousands and tens of thousands when he used to do that, right? Woo! Look at this guy go! For example. Or we hear about a missionary that goes over and he preaches the Gospel like, wow, that's so amazing, that's so great. And we miss the point that in this storyline, chapter 13 and 14, we have a previously lame guy that gets saved. And next thing you know, a couple months later, Paul comes back and he's got a church going. He's got a functioning church going. You know why? Because he understood being committed to the grace of God for the work. He was enthralled with the one who had saved him. And he couldn't help it but proclaim in the midst of persecution. Because there was persecution in that town. 
they couldn't help but proclaim. Couldn't help it. And people were getting saved, weren't they? They're getting saved. Enough to have church. And enough to have elders. People were growing in the Lord. Now, it would have been perfectly fine if he'd have been striving and ministering and nobody got saved, right? But it happens to be that people did get saved and a church was formed. Why? Because Paul formed the church? No. It's because somebody's heart was inflamed with Jesus. That's what happened. So I would present to you in verse 26 when it says that they had been commended to the grace of God or committed to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Basically what it is saying is the church recognized the calling on these people's lives, these two people's lives. I would submit to you that the church in Antioch is evidence that the people of the church of Antioch understood they had the same call on their lives. Because that church grew as well. Not because the church grew. Let me change that. Because the people were ministering. Verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, that is in Antioch, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened the doors, door of faith to the Gentiles. Interesting verse 27. A couple of very interesting things there. They arrive. Church gets together. They want to hear what Paul has to say. Paul and Barnabas had to say. And what Paul and Barnabas declare is what? All that God had done with them. That's just another way of saying, if I may say, two different things. He's saying two things at the same time. First, it's all that God had done. The with them, you need to understand, is, is not that God needed them, but all that God had done. Got that so far? What happened what was, was what God had done. When they put on the two words, with them, you should understand it this way. If Charles comes over to my house to fix my dryer, which he did a few weeks ago, Charles used a couple tools, didn't you? Primarily a screwdriver. But he used a couple tools. I don't praise the tools, do I? No. Charles fixed my dryer with a screwdriver. Happy he had a screwdriver. But he's the one who did the work, right? Get that, right? Very important that we recognize whatever happens, whatever happens is the Lord's doing. From beginning to end, it's the Lord's doing. It's not Paul and Barnabas' doing, as Jim, you mentioned before. Paul plants and, and Apollos waters. Second, I think it's... Maybe 1 Corinthians 3. I don't remember which. It's not what Paul and Barnabas did. It's what God did. And they're rejoicing with the people of the church with regard to what God has done. That includes 
a variety of things. You do realize that. It includes, I would present to you, what they're sharing with the church in Antioch. They're sharing with them how there have been some churches, some people got saved, some Gentiles got saved because they were sent out to minister to Gentiles, to preach the gospel of Gentiles. They're sharing with the church that some Gentiles got saved, right? They're also sharing with them Paul stoning. Because suffering for Jesus was promised, wasn't it? So the stoning is God's doing as well, isn't it? He's in charge, isn't he? He's sovereign, isn't he? Kind of like what Charles was talking about in the confession this morning. It includes the towns that didn't receive the gospel and rejected it completely and there was no regeneration. That too is the Lord's doing. That is absolutely the Lord's doing. And so what they're sharing with them, they declared, and the key word is all that God had done with them. And then it goes on, and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Who opened the door to the Gentiles? God did. Did Paul and Barnabas open the door to the Gentiles? No, they were the screwdrivers. Right? They were the means, in other words. That's all they were, is the means. In some towns, God used the means, Paul and Barnabas, to slam the door closed, didn't he? Know what happened? Closed. In other, door, in other towns, the door was what? Opened. That's what he says. That's what it says here. He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. There were some Gentiles that believed. That repented and believed. Some churches were formed. And then verse 28, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So they stayed there. It simply said they stayed in, in Antioch no little time. That means they stayed there for quite a significant period of time. And they ministered and were ministered to by uh, each other there in the town of Antioch. So it's, it, it, in the text, we have several things taking place. We have this real positive thing and this really seemingly, human, humanly speaking, difficult thing, don't we? Some places people believed, other places, uh, not at all. Not at all. In some places, almost nobody believed, but later on a church was there. Did that happen? Only one person. And later a church was there. In one place, it seemed like there was a lot of people that were believing, and then when they come back, there's nothing. Right? What do we do with all that? I was reminded of Luke 13. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. That's fine. I'm not going to go there. But I'm going to go there, but I'm just going to talk off the top of my head about it. In Luke 13, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like, and he gives a big long laundry list about the kingdom of God is like. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like. Right in the middle of that, he says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That's what he says. It's like a mustard seed. He goes on and says, the tiniest of seeds. 
And yet the farmer plants it. And later on, and when he says later on, what is he talking about? Much later on, it turns into what? A great big tree. But initially it doesn't seem like anything, does it? Initially it seems like almost nothing. But over time, what happens? Things begin to change, don't they? And before you know it, a sprout comes out of the ground. And over time, it's not just a sprout, but it's a young sapling. And over time, it gets to be taller than your head. And over time, it starts blocking out the sun, doesn't it? You know what happens? Or right after that, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like yeast. Or leaven. A woman takes it, puts a little bit into a bag of flour. And over time, what does it do? It leavens the whole thing. It spreads. But it takes time, doesn't it? What we see in, in Acts chapter 13 and 14, you could argue, is, is the beginnings towards the Gentiles. You could see the beginnings of the kingdom of God as a mustard seed, as yeast, beginning to have subtle, and it is subtle, isn't it? Subtle effects. Really subtle effects. But could I submit some, something to you here? I'm looking at our small band of believers here. You know what I see? I see a bunch of Gentiles. Do you realize that? That's all I see. A bunch of Gentiles. I don't think there's any Jewish people here. A bunch of Gentiles. You see, the mustard seed began to sprout, didn't it? Right? Began to sprout. The yeast has begun to affect the flour, hasn't it? I don't know about you, sometimes it gets discouraging, doesn't it? Doesn't it? We don't see things happening right away. It gets discouraging, doesn't it? Okay, I saw one or two people shake their heads. Does it ever get discouraging? Does it almost feel like, what's the point? Does it ever feel like, well, maybe God's not working in the same way He used to work? Does it ever feel that way? Could I submit to you that's not the case at all? At all. You see, the increase belongs to who? It belongs to God. Are you and I commended to the increase? No. We're not. Just like Paul and Barnabas, we are committed to what? The grace of God. That's what we're committed to. Fellowshipping in, enjoying, reveling in, learning, growing in, appreciating, worshiping the God of grace and learning about the grace of God. And understanding spiritually about the grace of God. And you know what happens? Just like with Paul and Barnabas. 
we begin to do what? To be doing the work. That's what happens. And the thing you don't see in Paul and Barnabas is this idea, wow, these churches are, these, these towns are rejecting the gospel. What's the point? Do you see that? Yeah, let's just give up and go make tents. Is that what you see? No, because you know what you see in Paul and Barnabas in this section and other believers, Peter and John, James, you know what you see? And others, Timothy, Titus, and others, you know what you see? You see, we look not at things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are temporary, and the things that are unseen are eternal. And what's eternal in the thing we're to look at? The grace of God and the God of grace. And that will be the fuel that will cause us to work. And as we work, can I just submit to you something? We may have, we may have a lot of Pisidias and Pamphylias and Pergas and Antilias. We may. We may. Paul did. He had a whole lot of those, didn't he? Yeah, we may have some Ephesians and Philippians churches. We may. Or believers. But we may very well just find ourselves in the Perga camp. Right? But yet his kingdom is forever, isn't it? His kingdom's forever. And he's on the march. And it's a victorious march. Because he's already conquered sin, Satan, and death. <laughs> and all who are appointed to eternal life receive eternal life. Realize, friends, we are commended to the grace of God. And the work of grace of God will flow from us. Let's pray. Lord, help us. It is so easy for us to see what we see with our eyes. <clears throat> it's so easy to deceive ourselves into thinking, well, people just won't believe. It's so easy for us to think, What's the point? And all those things are just evidences that we are not living a life that is commended to the grace of God. So we ask you to change our hearts. Draw us close. Help us again to be reminded of the God of grace and the grace of God. Change our hearts so that we will be people who are committed to the grace of God and that that will draw us to be in the work that you have for us. So we ask you to glorify yourself in our church, corporately, as you see fit, and in the individuals of our church as you see fit, for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.
Let's stand and sing.